once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. That may be a little aspirational for me to be talking to boys and girls on a Saturday morning in an economics radio talk show, but I'm going to do it anyway. This is the personal wealth coach, and uh, hopefully we'll be talking, or I'll be talking today uh, about all things economic, from personal finance up to the massive global picture, um, or picture. One of them is worth a thousand words, something like that. Uh, This is the personal wealth coach, and we've got some disclosures that have to come out at the beginning of every one of our episodes because... um, I'm sure there's good reasons. <laughs> uh, the personal wealth coach is not just the name of this program. And the guy talking to you, Jake McClure, is not only a, a radio talk program host. The personal wealth coach is also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. Now, what does that mean? Um, when you have a certain amount of money that you're advising on, they require you go to the national or federal level rather than the state level. That's all it means. It's a regulator. Um, it's the firm, the personal wealth coach is registered as an investment advisor, which means that we give fiduciary investment advice. And that means that we really need to know the person we're talking to. We need to understand their position what they what their opinions are and what they're trying to achieve, then we have to have expertise in the area that we're giving the advice in. So that's a lot. And it's totally impossible to know everybody that's listening to me on the radio right now. I wish I could. Uh, I, I would very much like to be sitting there wherever you are. You probably wouldn't want the bald guy with the beard to be sitting with you at this moment, though. Um, I don't know. You're obviously weird if you're listening to me anyway, so maybe you would enjoy my presence. Uh, The uh, SEC doesn't give affirmation, approval, or any other positivity in its registration process. It just says, okay. So no um, hint of their approval should be implied because someone's registered with them. They require us to say something. I don't think they wrote it exactly the way I said it. Maybe... Maybe that they would feel a little bit sad about me saying that they're not into affirmation, but uh, I'm sorry, SEC, if, if that's the case, uh, but you're not into approval at, at any rate. Um, what's next? Uh, we don't pay for this radio program. It's not paid commercial programming. Uh, we do buy advertising on the station for the program, but the studio does as well, if you can call buying from itself buying. Uh, We're in a partnership that's lasted since 1996 with the radio channel. It's been through three, no, two different studio locations and a lot of different owners during that time period. And we're still here for some reason. I don't know if it's because we're just really stubborn. They can't find anybody else to take the slot or you guys like us. Not sure which. Anyway, uh, not paid for. The stuff I'm talking about here come from sources that I deem to be reliable, that we have looked at and done research into their their due diligence to make sure that what I'm reporting has at least as much likelihood of being correct as anything reported in the media or statistically. 
And you'll hear us <laughs> over the years talk about how inaccurate even the most accurate data is. So that's the big uh, disclosures. Uh, I have, man, I have a lot of questions that have stockpiled up uh, for me to, to talk about this week. I, and people didn't even know when they sent these questions that Elder Baldy wasn't going to be here with me. Okay, so I'm going to start, uh, I'm jumping you to the, the head of the line, John, our, our most faithful and loyal inquisitor, John. He sends us questions every week, and we love them. Um, they cover a pretty broad spectrum of interests. So two questions from him this week. One, is there an accepted definition for the term oversold around the market? What is an oversold market? And a quick, easy answer to that is no. Uh, there, is no there is no easy definition. And even when we talk about correction and bear market, that's not, there's, there's not an agency that certifies that term. Nobody says, this means exactly 10% in some official capacity and then gives it that. So you could, you know, it's commonly believed that a correction is 10% down and a bear is 20% down. So what does oversold mean? Well, when somebody says the market's undervalued, it seems more like a, a statement of, um, information rather than an actionable item. When someone says the market's oversold, that tends to make people feel like an urge to do something about it. So often the people that are saying oversold are encouraging you to buy, where the people that say it's undervalued are just giving you a metric. Um, an oversold market just means in the person who's saying it is their opinion is that the market should be worth more. <laughs> there is no good definition for it. If you're talking about from a value investing perspective, that means you're buying things based on the company's net worth. What are its assets? What are its liabilities? Net those out. Assets minus liability is net worth, or in the market, we have to come up with new terminology for it, so we call it book value or net equity. Um, just because why not make silly words when a simpler one already exists? Uh, it makes us sound smart. So the net worth of a company, if the company's net worth, all its factories, all of its property, all of its intellectual property, if they could sell those assets for a billion dollars and the marketplace, the stock market, has valued their stock prices at half that, so if you were Elon Musk and you came up with half a billion dollars, you could just buy the company and then turn around and sell it for its assets, you would make $500 million if you could buy the whole company at $500 million, which when people start to buy it, the price goes up. So that may not be the case. You follow what I'm saying though. We can't get too complicated. So when you see a lot of the market getting into value territory, that's pretty commonly referred to as oversold. But it doesn't have to mean that. It could be somebody says, hey, the price to earnings ratio just dropped down to 100. That's oversold. That would be a stretch in my, <laughs> by my definition. But people have said it. So there's not a common definition. Um, that was a really long-winded answer with a real short one at the beginning of no, there's not a common definition. Okay, next one. And this one I think is more fun. Um, John has sent 
as is tradition, a digital picture of the Wall Street Journal and the article there. So he's got a, a digital picture of the paper version of the Wall Street Journal, which we don't get the paper version anymore. I haven't had one in years and years. It's great to be able to see it still exists because we get it directly digitized rather than anal digital to analog and then back to digital. Uh, but it's a, it's a cool experience. Okay, his question is, what are the U.S. strategic commodities or have we offshored them all too? He's got an article here from the Wall Street Journal called saying, Beijing uses its pole to tame inflation. And specifically, there's a paragraph circled that says, China maintains enormous reserves of strategic commodities it can tap to curb price pressures. Last summer, authorities began releasing metals, including copper, and it goes on to another page, but I'm assuming they say aluminum. Um, it could be nickel and steel as well. Okay, so what are the U.S. commodity, strategic commodity reserves? Okay, so... This is a fantastic question because we have some, obviously. We've got the petroleum, the strategic petroleum reserve, and uh, that's supposed to be used in the event of a war or major emergency to supply official vehicles with some method of getting around if we're cut off from oil somehow. It's kind of interesting because this was set up at a time when we were afraid that we were beginning to import more oil than we should. In the 1970s, when the Saudis were using oil as a strategic weapon uh, to shut off our oil because they didn't disagree with our, or they didn't agree with our politics. So the, and that's just one example of many reasons why it's a good idea to have this reserve, even though we're making a lot of our own stuff now, a lot of our own oil now. So we have the strategic oil reserve. Um, we don't have the kind of strategic commodities reserves that China does. And I'll go into that for just a second. We've got uh, quite a number of strategic stockpiles, uh, mostly in medical equipment or food and water. So FEMA keeps a whole large amount of uh, food and water in storage. We have, uh, uh, a, I believe it's the, called the Strategic National Reserve for medical supplies. Um, and that's what President Trump was tapping during the, the pandemic, the first part of the pandemic, to provide uh, respirators and um, um, all of the major reserve requirements that were required. <laughs> uh, that was just released, not in bulk, but strategically. It's what it's for. Okay. And it's one of those things that in budget items, Congress often talks about these, this sort of thing and says, um, why, why do we pay money for things that are just sitting in a warehouse? And then we have a big emergency and then they say, look what we did. We kept this money moving to the right place and we had it in the warehouse. So depending on what the season is for the use of the reserve, it's either a drain on the budget or a great boon. Um, China, on the other hand, this is really important to understand. A great deal of China's economy is still state-owned. Uh, it's just like Russia's economy. When we talk about the oligarchs uh, in Russia, they are in charge of a state-owned sector of the economy, whether that's a, a one company or four. 
uh, it's kind of like fiefdoms in the old medieval system in the in the uh, in the times where this was the way an economy worked. Uh, so if if we think of Russia more as a feudal economy and China more as a feudal economy, all of the land basically is owned by the state. So if you think old England, um, merry old England, uh, it, all of the land was owned by these um, these lines of genetics that go way back saying my family's owned this for forever but they all owe the owning to a king in china and in russia it's just the dictator that they owe their ownership to so china keeps a lot of strategic reserves in metals lots of metals why because they don't have much they don't have steel or aluminum or oil easily found in their country. Their country, one of the ways of looking at this is one of the oldest places with a high population on the planet where people have been living there and mining there for so long. A lot of the easy iron, the easy steel is already gone. You get iron being one of the components of steel. They're lacking in petroleum. Exxon Development was out there 30 years ago looking all over Russia, looking all over Mongolia. And they found some in Mongolia in the northern end, but that's Russia. China doesn't have much in the way of petroleum. That's part of the reason why the, the South Russia Sea is a, is a strategic movement when they... that. Uh, the big sea grab that they've done recently with islands that they're contesting. It's because there's petroleum reserves underneath there and they don't have any. So why doesn't the United States keep massive steel reserves or nickel reserves or aluminum reserves? We don't because whether it's smart or not, we recognized over the past just about a century after automobiles had been in the United States for a while, we had World War II and we were still creating a lot of steel at that point. Uh, U.S. Steel was a major, uh, was still one of the, the largest companies on the planet and it was producing steel in the United States. But what the government found is that we have a strategic stockpile in steel in all the junkyards from one end of the nation to the other. We've got car steel sitting ready to be scooped up and plopped into uh, just about anything else. So from the United States perspective, the government doesn't own this big stockpile for that same reason we were talking about earlier, where it's a drain on the budget. If you have this big stockpile, this is going to go back in time just a couple of years, 2018, oh, four years now, uh, President Trump is instituting tariffs on steel and aluminum, and it's directly addressing the Chinese use of commodities to prop up its currency, to fight inflation, um, to fund programs in China, because they have purchased so much of it over the years that they have these extreme stockpiles of it, just like we do in oil. And when uh, early in the Russian campaign in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, uh, when the president released 
the petroleum reserves to combat the price of oil. We were up near $120 a barrel. Now we're down, it dropped us below uh, $100 for a little bit. Now we're back up to about $115 a barrel. So we don't have enough, nor does China, to just use only the stockpile and everything will be fine. It's designed as an emergency. Have we offshored it? No. Our reserves are in junkyards. Uh, the amount of aluminum that we have, and this is fascinating, um, during uh, the late 2019 and into 2020 uh, time period, in the United States, the majority of aluminum parts in the United States were coming from recycled aluminum. This is a big difference from what was happening in 2016 and 2017 when the majority of aluminum was imported. We had these tariffs and it caused the recycling of our existing junk to be as uh, or slightly better economically uh, than to, to import. So it was used. It didn't help the U.S. aluminum or steel industry that much. It did help the U.S. recycling industry quite a lot, which I'm not sure that's what the president was going for here. Um, and just kind of merge this into another subject because I've gotten a lot of questions on this as well. You may have seen stories about the baby formula shortage that's taking place in the United States. It's not just, it's not just here, by the way. It's worldwide. What's causing that? We had baby formula shortage at the beginning of the pandemic, and it seemed to have melted away. And or that's maybe not the best word to use about formula. Um, the, we started getting it back on the shelves, and then now it's been gone for a, a big chunk of this year. Where where is the baby formula? What's happened? Well, there's a couple of things involved here. Um, there aren't that many companies that make it in the United States. I think there's only four major companies that make it. They've been consolidating. Uh, and they've been consolidating over a period of years. But there's never been a lot of companies that make it. Why? Because it's one of the most highly regulated part of food. And we can shake our fist and be angry at the FDA for being slow in their regulation or whatever. But we're the ones that put them in charge of it. Why? Well, because we don't want our babies to die. <laughs> That's, that is, to get right to the point, if there's something wrong in the formula, it's not uh, as good as an adult having something wrong in their food. So it's a very highly regulated, very safety conscious area. It's almost at the level of pharmaceuticals in the control process that has to go on. And Abbott Labs had to do a recall because there was some issue with the formula and they're not really sure what the issue was or if it's related at all, but a series of babies got sick after eating that formula. So they did a voluntary recall. And did you hear who I said it was? Abbott Labs. They're a pharmaceutical company. That's what you'll find in a lot of these situations is that the pharmaceutical arm of a company is kind of in charge of the baby formula area because as i said this <laughs> we don't want our babies to die so what's happened uh it's multi-part we're having food shortages on the markets of the right grade of material because of supply issues well what are the supply issues well there's a one of the 
two of the major suppliers of wheat and corn, sunflower seed and so on, are at war with each other right now and not exporting. So the two of the top three in the world are, and by that, that they produce together, if you throw the United States out of the equation, almost as much as the rest of the world combined for the export market. So, I mean, that says something. When you throw the United States in, if the three of them were combined, it's more than the rest of the world in the export market. So two of the top three are not exporting. We're not getting the things that need to go into the formula. You throw on that that they've got one of the major manufacturing facilities, the factory. It's really just a big kitchen, really, really big kitchen. Um, They haven't shut down. Because they're trying to figure out, was there something wrong? What they're doing tests on the formula to see if it had anything to do with them. So five babies being sick caused this plant to shut down, which has definitely exacerbated the shortage. There's 40% of the United States market is missing baby formula at this point. So it's a big deal. This is the reason why we're seeing the kind of inflation that we are. It doesn't, there's a lot of different kinds of inflation. The inflation that we saw in the 1970s, stagflation, was based on high unemployment. So not a lot of people were working. Well, a lot of people were working, but a lot of people weren't working. And we still had inflation. So what was that about? How can, how can we have high unemployment where people aren't getting paid and prices going up at the same time? That doesn't makes sense in today's economy. Today's economy, a lot of people are working, unemployment's really low, and we have high inflation. Stagflation's the opposite of that. We've got less people working and we're still having it. So what causes that? Those people that are working have instituted in their pay scheme for the future ad, infin- ad infinitum to forever getting pay raises for no... Uh, change in the quality of their work. So if you give somebody a raise, you're a business owner and you say, oh man, I need to give them a raise. They are doing a great job. That's a good reason to give somebody a raise. If you want to give somebody a raise because they've worked there four years, but they haven't really done anything better than they did when they first were hired, that's a little bit more like, oh, well, I'll give it to them because they need it. When you add that into an economy, a raise because they need it, and everybody says it together, it means that everybody gets pay raises, which means that you have to raise the price of whatever whatever it is that you're selling to pay your employees with. So that's structural change based on wages. We have a structural change based on low supply. I think people understand, understand supply and demand better as an inflation type but because we're used to this more complex type of this wage price spiral thing from stagflation, we think inflation's a lot more complicated than it is because it can be. The inflation that we're seeing today is the inflation that's written about in every natural disaster. It's the inflation that's written about in every war period. It's the inflation that's written about anytime you have uh, crops that don't produce for a given year if you have winter that lasts too long or a really wet spring you can have this kind of inflation it's a supply shortage and that's really as simple as it needs to be is it 
hyperinflation. No, and I can give you some examples of hyperinflation. Brazil's real in the 1980s into the 90s had inflation that was triple digits a year, hundreds of percent a year inflation. They weren't short of anything. They were producing more of the stuff that they had on hand than they ever had before. So what was causing it? Simple belief. People thought it was going to continue, so they bought things as soon as they saw them, and they didn't wait to buy them, which caused the price to go up because everybody tried to buy them as soon as it happened. As soon as they release the item, everybody's trying to buy it, which causes the price to go up. And so the people that are selling it say, oh, my employees need to buy like this too. I've got to raise the employment prices. So everybody just assumed that inflation was going to be high and it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. I have a great book called The Economics of Self-Fulfilling Prophecies. And inflation and deflation can fall very easily into that category. And that's kind of what hyperinflation is. When people just assume it's going to be there and make all their decisions as if tomorrow the prices are going to be higher than today. So buy today, and that causes the price to be higher tomorrow. It, it is a, that's a loop that's all in our head, but that's all money is. I mean, the reality is that the paper dollar or a blip of electronics being worth something of value is purely in our heads. It's what we believe it to be. Uh, it's our opinion of the worth of the thing that we're trading. And that's when we look at today's inflation, I think people are really trying to overcomplicate it. Overcomplicated it? <laughs> uh, it, it is, it's as, as simple as it needs to be, is there's not enough stuff to go around. Uh, when you look at the housing market, um, and there's some really good statistics on, on the housing market, when we look at the, uh, the vacancy rate, uh, if you look at vacancy rate on houses, what is that? The, the Census Bureau goes and does surveys across the nation and says, all right, do you have a house for rent? And if you say yes, is it vacant and how long has it been vacant? And those are numbers that are tracked over a long period of time and we can say, all right, this is the number of vacant houses in any given metro area. And that's how they keep it. It's by state is very hard because you've got to get out in the rural areas. But by metro area, it's relatively easy. And what's being very easily seen is that there are a lot fewer vacant houses this year than last year. And last year had fewer vacant houses than the year before. Why? Well, because when the pandemic hit, we really stopped building houses for a while. Uh, and prior to that, we had this long period where we hadn't built houses for quite a bit after the crash in 2007, uh, 2008 of the real estate market. Are we in a real estate bubble today? This is a great question. And I've got this one as one of my questions as well. Is it a bubble? There are certainly areas where the prices are a lot higher than they historically would be, areas being the majority of the country, the vast majority of the country. Is it a bubble? It doesn't meet the description. What is the description? Let's do a comparison to 2006 and 2007. 
the vast majority of houses being purchased were second residences or third residences. They weren't primary residences. That meant that they were being purchased to sell to somebody else. They were hoping to make a profit by buying it and selling it. The vacancy rate was way up. There were a lot of houses that didn't have anybody in them. And that meant that it wouldn't support itself. We've got the opposite of that right now. The housing market is definitely high, but it's not hyperinflated. It isn't people buying it because they believe it's going to be higher. There's some of that. It's because there's not enough to go around. So the, the bubble in 2006, 2007 is the same as hyperinflation. People were buying the houses because they believed the houses would be worth more money almost immediately and so they could sell it. Just like in hyperinflated Brazilian reals, you bought the things as soon as they appeared on the shelf because tomorrow they were going to be worth more. It would be more expensive to buy them. So buy them today. That's what the market looked like in 2006 and 2007. And there's some places that looks like that today, particularly in vacation areas. But the vast majority of metro areas, we've got the, the numbers just aren't supporting a bubble here. The vacancy rate is way too low, which means we don't have enough houses to go around. We need that vacancy rate to, to allow the prices to keep low. We're starting to see some downward pressure on the prices because interest rates are going up. For the rest of the hour, I wanted to talk about some technology that's coming up. And it's not even the far-reaching stuff that I talk about a lot of times and we're talk, talking about battery technology at this point. And even when I talk about battery technology, I'm, I've often talked about completely new forms of batteries like the aluminum air battery and kind of stretching out there into the distant future of 10 or 15 years out as to what that is. There's a much closer battery technology that's very close. In the next three years or so, we should start to see it actually in things that we're using. And, and that is something called a solid-state lithium-ion battery. Um, what, what is that? Well, if, if you've got any kind of battery that's lithium-based, it's probably inside its packaging... And these little cylinders that look like the AA batteries that we're all familiar with, they've got a different wrap around them, but they're about the same size. They're just a few volts each. And, and they're kind of layered as like foil and this other goopy stuff and that other goopy stuff. It's, it's electrolytes and lithium that are layered together. And, and the movement of electrons from the lithium through the electrolyte to other lithium cathode to anode stuff causes the energy to be either recharged into it or to come out of it for use well there's some problems with lithium ion batteries they're flammable for one that's a big deal i mean we've all seen videos of people's phones catching on fire in their pockets and laptops bursting into flame as you're typing on them. And it doesn't happen very often. Uh, what's more worrisome is on the road, a car getting hit hard enough to rupture that liquid electrolyte out. It's flammable. It's extremely flammable. It's hard to put out unless the, the fire department's equipped with a special kind of spray to put lithium out. So, 
what are we what am I talking about as the new technology? Solid state. It doesn't have the liquid electrolyte. It is uh, solid wafers that uh, use other components than electrolytes. It's not as um, flammable, and it's more energy dense. So Toyota, BMW, Tesla, Ford, um, they're all working on solid state, and all of them have prototypes in working order. The density of these things is between 50% and 80% more than that prior. So one of the things that are, is, is causing electric vehicles to kind of be slow to be picked up is people might want to drive more than 200 miles before charging. If you only had 200 miles before you had to get gas and getting gas took two hours, it, it's not very convenient. I mean, it's nice to be able to top up when you're parked in your garage, but if you're taking any kind of a longer trip where you get stuck out doing errands and you've somehow worked out your whole 200 miles, you could be stuck for a while. Well, if you increase that by 80% with a solid state, the density increases nearly double, you're now talking about 360 to th miles to go before you need a recharge on, a, on the cheapest, smallest of the batteries. Some of those batteries are more like 500 miles at this point. And if with an 80% increase, you're now talking around 900 miles that you could drive. So that's significant. And the new, newer battery types that are in the distance are talking about uh, orders of magnitude of increase in density so that you could go 10,000 miles between charging. Uh, that's coming. The solid state battery is coming faster, which means that the price is going to come down on batteries. It requires less lithium and the, the other pieces that go into it are less expensive. It's safer. So this is economics moving ahead, technology coming out to, to cause the auto industry to take off. I said, how is battery technology affecting the housing market? Well, 15 years ago during the boom that led up, the housing boom that led up to the bust, I talked about some of the changes that had been taking place in, uh, in building where it was rare to see somebody walking around with a claw-toothed hammer as they were building, building a house, they had a nail gun. Now the nail gun was attached with a tube to uh, a, a pneumatic machine that's building up air pressure. And that thing was probably attached to a generator. But it still was a lot faster than using a, a claw hammer to put a nail in, unless you were just the most elite John Henry versus the world in, in <laughs> steel driving. Um, if you could knock your hammer and, and get that nail in in one swing, you were amazing. Well, if you got a nail gun, anybody could do it. So that was a great innovation and it led to faster building. Um, the hand saw being replaced by an electric saw, a portable table saw, um, portable circular saws. They all had cords attached to them. You had to have a big generator there. It was slower than battery technology today. The vast majority of home construction is done using battery technology at this point. That's just phenomenal to see that shift happen in a, in a very short period of time. 
And as battery technology continues to increase where you can get more power on site for new things, you're seeing things like electric lawnmowers that are as powerful as a gas lawnmower. Now, the price is roughly similar. Um, and just to give you very anecdotal information, we have an electric lawnmower that's running on batteries. Um, I, as a kid, ran a landscaping company. I did a lot of lawn mowing. I know what lawnmowers are like. And I have tracked the cost of the lawnmower with the batteries, and batteries are expensive. It's a lot cheaper to use an electric lawnmower with batteries than it is to use a gas mower. And you're seeing that hit the commercial lawn care market with zero turn mowers with batteries because they're cheaper during their lifetime by far than the louder, noisier, I said it twice because I, I, <laughs> I don't like them, um, machines that run uh, in commercial enterprises today, when people come up with the leaf blower and the big machine tied to their back and this thing that just sounds like an aircraft engine as they're blowing leaves around, an electric version of that is still loud, but not as loud. And it's a lot less expensive for the lifetime of it. So expect to see a lot more zero turn mowers out there that are electric with batteries. Everybody's coming out with them. I mean, every of the major lawnmower manufacturers are coming out with them. And you may see that transition to full battery technology way ahead of the other internal combustion stuff ahead of the cars, because most people don't have more than an acre to mow. And if you can do that on a battery charge and just plug it back in, you don't have to go and buy gas and in some cases mix it with oil. Um, in the uh, chainsaw area, the big lumber area, we're seeing a big wave there too. So th this is technology moving ahead. And when you see it across the board, it makes it easier to understand how we're going to see that in automobiles. I still hear a lot of doubt that people are going to transition to batteries in automobiles because of that it takes so long to charge and it's not got a long way it can drive. So why would you want to do that? And the answer is as technology is increasing, that solid state battery, by the way, with that 80% increase, charges in 15 minutes instead of two hours. And that's not appreciably slower than getting your tank filled up at a station and going inside and paying. Um, so we're, we're now looking at parity in a certain area where the technology is going to go toward electric. It isn't, it isn't me saying internal combustion is somehow bad or I don't like fossil fuels or some kind of green eco anything. It's when things are cheaper and more efficient to do a certain way, that's how they get done. Um, I, didn't, I didn't say, hey, it's a good idea to move to natural gas for power production because I hated coal. It was cheaper and more efficient. And now that's what we're doing. Coal is going away as, a, as something that you burn to create energy, not because it's a bad source of energy. It's just because there's a lot of other better ways. And that's how technology works. People that own an electric vehicle today are doing it because it's affordable to do it. 
Uh, it starts usually with the early adopters that are buying the bleeding edge technology. Uh, but it eventually, if it takes off, is the people that are using it because it's cost effective. And we're about almost out of time for this hour. Uh, hopefully you've enjoyed my soliloquy, my long-winded rants about uh, trivial items that most people don't care about. Um, but if you'd like to talk to us off the air, we do give fiduciary customized investment advice to people of high net worth. Uh, and the local number is 254-947-1111. Or you can reach that line toll-free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. We've got newsletters there. You can sign up for them or read them there. Uh, you uh, can listen to our radio programs going back lots of years. You can find our podcasts anywhere they're around. You can use the contact form or email directly at jeff or jake at tpwc.com. We read those things. Uh, until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach. Thank you very much for listening.